Thank you, Holy Spirit, for this new day. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for your joy, for your anointing over us. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We worship you today. And Father, I thank you that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Thank you that Christ is in us and we are in Christ and Christ is in us and we have the mind of Christ and we have the Holy Spirit within us. Thank you that you have made us your temple and your presence dwells in us. Thank you for the life, eternal life that you have given us. Father, we worship you and praise you today. We give you all the honor, all the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't the Holy Spirit such so good with us? I love the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I love fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't done that for a long time, I so many times I tell him, I miss you, Holy Spirit. I missed you. I miss talking with you. I miss praying. I miss uh, fellowshipping with you, worshiping you, worshiping the Father. And I, I hope I stir that appetite to go and worship the Father. Even now, before this, this session or after the session, worship the Father in the Holy Spirit, in tongues. Worship Him, praise Him because He's so wonderful. He's so glorious, so full of power, so full of life. And He has shared with us that nature, that life, that joy, that righteousness. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much once again. Welcome to session seven of the New Creation series teaching that we are in and I hope you in, you're enjoying this series as I do. I enjoy it very much and I'm so full of joy and so full of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's been so good to me and today I cannot but share that today is my ninth uh, marriage anniversary with my wife and it's been such a joyful uh, such a joyful day in which to remember all God's blessings and to thank Him for what He has done in our lives. We are so blessed. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Holy Spirit. Are you ready? The session today is entitled The Free of Condemnation Forever. And this is part one of, the, of, of uh, this message and we will have a part two in session eight. Uh, and today we are going to discuss about powerful, powerful uh, facet of the gospel that I, I believe will bring you peace, will bring you rest, will bring you joy. And the message of this session and the, uh, the next session is that the new creation in, in Christ Jesus, the believer in Christ, has the gift of no condemnation forever. He, the new creation is justified forever. And the salvation that, a new, uh, that the believer receives by faith is uh, is forever even if you still do sinful actions we will see and we will prove from the bible that you are free from condemnation you are free from hell you are free from sin i believe this match will bring you peace joy and will give you a tremendous significant strength and power to walk in holiness to walk in faith to to build you up in faith so if you're ready let's open our bibles to the first passage for this session in romans 8 verses 1 and 2. Probably you've noticed that we spend uh, a lot of time in, in Romans in this uh, teaching series and Romans is a great book. It's a great theological book in which you, we see and understand different facets of the gospel and especially about justification, about sanctification, about the grace of God. So let's, let's read it together. If, you're, if, if you have your Bibles with you, read it with me. 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I'll read it again. It's so exciting. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, let's see. First of all, before we move on, let's see who, uh, what people does Paul address in this passage, in this context. And we know that the whole book uh, of Romans is uh, Paul addresses the church in Romans but here in this specific passage says this therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so Paul when Paul uh, uh, says this verse he refers to those who are in Christ in Christ Jesus and we know that there is a visible church and invisible church. The visible church is all the people that uh, claim that they are in Christ and they go to church and they are believers. But the invisible church is the, the, the real church of Christ who are genuine in their heart. And we, we cannot see that. We cannot see exactly that invisible church while we are on earth. But Paul addresses that invisible church, the, those people that are in Christ Jesus. And he says that for those people, there is now... No, once you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you forever. What does it mean to be in Christ? Probably we know that by, uh, by now. To be in Christ means to be born again, to be a believer in Christ, to be a new creation, to be saved, to be justified, to have eternal life, and to have the Holy Spirit. All these are synonymous. All these are facets of being in Christ. Now let's see, when, when are people condemned usually, like humanly speaking, when a person gets condemned by, by the system, by the government, uh, by the law, when they broke the law. So condemnation comes upon a person when that person breaks the law. Now, if we come to God and our relationship with God, people are condemned before God. People that are condemned before God are sinners. We are condemned before God when we sin. And we sin, we all sin in Adam. And the whole human race is condemned before God because of Adam's sin and because of our sinful actions. That's, that is before Christ. What does it, what does it mean to have no condemnation before God. To be not condemned before God means to be justified. And to be justified is a, a legal status we discussed in session 2 that where, where God declares you justified. That, that is what God declares about you, that you are justified. And that means that you are, you are considered as if you have never sinned. And I'll explain that. I'll explain that. Justification is a little bit more than just forgiveness of sins. When we think about uh, forgiveness of sins or mistakes in our human relationships with one another, usually forgiveness means that the person that is wronged uh, overlooks the mistake remains unpaid, but the, the wrong person overlooks that mistakes and forgives and uh, the, chooses to forget about the mistake and overlook it and move on and, and make peace with the other person. But the phrase forgiveness of sins in our relationship with God can be used only in the sense that we did not pay it directly for our sins because of His mercy. He did not overlook our sins, but we did not pay it directly. We paid in Christ. Christ did pay for our sins and we paid in Him. 
nevertheless, the sin was not overlooked, was not forgiven in a human, a human as we understand forgiveness. We can say it was forgiven because we did not pay, but the, the, our sins were paid in full in Christ Jesus. They were not overlooked or forgotten by God like in the human relationship. So justification means that you paid for your sins in full in Christ Jesus, and you have been reborn into a new justified creation who has never sinned. The old creation sinned in Adam, but the new creation that is reborn in the spirit has never sinned, is justified forever. Amen. And our sins have been removed, not just forgiven. We use this phrase and it's, it's okay, it's not a problem, but there's a higher truth. We are not, the new creation is not only forgiven, means that God overlooked our sin. Our sins were paid, His justice were satisfied, and we, we, we died, the old creation, the the old self died in Christ. The old self with all the sins died in Christ. And the new self took, the, took its place. A new self created in the righteousness of God, justified forever, who has never sinned. Even though we do sinful actions with our minds, with our bodies, our spirits, our, reborn, our recreated spirit has never sinned. It's justified forever. It's free of condemnation of sin. Isn't that great? Isn't that powerful? So that's the first truth that we established today that Justification means that you are considered by God as you have never sinned. You're, you are holy and righteous inside. Now many Christians read this passage from Romans 8, 1 and 2. And unconsciously, because of the framework of beliefs that they built in time since they were born on this, on this world. And every person in this world has a framework, framework of beliefs in their mind that is built in time through teachers, through books, TV. And that is unconscious. It's a, like a grid of, it's a grid of, um, by which Greed of beliefs by which we integrate new information, we analyze, we interpret, and we receive, we um, accept or reject uh, new beliefs. So when we when we read these two passages, these two verses from Romans, many Christians add unconsciously to the to these uh, verses the following phrases. And I have four types of phrases. The first one is this: Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the addition is as long as they don't do sinful actions. So that's the first addition that we put in our mind when we read this verse. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as long as they don't do sinful actions. Now think about this. Paul is addressing this verse to whom? To born-again believers, to those who are in Christ Jesus that still have sinful actions in their lives. Do you still have sinful actions? I do. I do still have sinful actions. And if, if, if those people that are in Christ have, did not have sinful actions, they would, not, they would never be condemned, right? You are condemned when you do sinful actions. So if you, if you never do sinful actions, you are not condemned. So then if you are not condemned, anyway, this verse becomes relevant. So the, but the Apostle Paul has in mind exactly those people who were regenerated, made righteous, and still have sinful actions in their lives. And those actions have the tendency of making believers, you and me, feel condemned, although we are not anymore. So because of the sinful action that we are still doing, we have the tendency of feeling condemned. Because if we didn't do those sinful actions, we would never be condemned. So this verse would not make any sense. So Paul tells those people that have still have sinful actions, 
that for you specifically, you are in Christ, you, do still, uh, you still do sinful actions, but I am telling you, therefore, there is now no condemnation, even if you do those sinful actions. So this addition, I want to uh, destroy this addition that we put with our minds, that you are free of condemnation, even if you still do sinful actions but until the end of your life. Amen. And that brings brings you peace. Don't bother of those about about those sinful actions. They are still sins. They they still grieve God. I'm not saying that, but don't focus on that. Don't and don't let those sinful actions to to steal your peace, to steal what Jesus Christ has paid for you at the cross. Paul says there, even if you have those actions, you are free of condemnation. The second addition is the following one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, addition, until the next sin. So you are, in other words, you are, uh, you are free of condemnation until next sin, until the future sin. And let me destroy that addition too. Let's read Colossians 2.13 where it says this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, Having, having forgiven us all our transgressions. What does it mean all? All our sins, all our transgressions. It's not just past and present, but also the future ones. And that's a great truth that I want to bring to, to you today. That all your sins at the moment of salvation, when you, you, when you put your faith in Christ Jesus, you are justified in that moment. And all your sins, past, present, and future, they are all taken away, removed in that instant. That is why Paul can say there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. No addition, period. You are not condemned. Let me take another, another passage from Hebrews uh, that will say the same thing. Hebrews 10, 11, 14, 11 to 14. Let's read it together. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Say, uh, notice verse 12 where it says, He having offered one sacrifice for, for sins, for all sins, for all time. Means past present and future for all time and that is also in verse 14 he has perfected for all time forever those who are sanctified we believe when we are saved we believe that our past sins are taken away our present sins are taken away but what about the future ones and we have the tendency to believe uh, because of the teaching that uh, we receive in different places from different people, we have the tendency to, to, to believe that our future sins that we, we are still going to do, they need our confession in order to be taken away. So we need first to confess them so that God could take them away. Uh, but if our future sins need our require our confession so that they would be forgiven or taken away, then that means 
It's like adding our work of confessions to the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's kind of, of, of doing the same thing that people of Israel did in the Old Testament by sacrificing over and over again. See verse 11, it says in Hebrews, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So confessing, if confession is really required, it's a condition for being forgiven or, or for our sins to be taken away, then that would be a work that we would have to add to the sacrifice of Jesus. And we know from the Bible that we are saved and all our sins are taken away only by faith, only by Jesus. No work from or no human work needs to be added so that we would be saved so, or uh, so that our sins would be taken away. And many Christians, I want to say this, that when, we, when they sin, they feel that God is upset with them. If, if, they, if they don't confess their sins, they feel like God is angry and he st still upset, st stays upset until we, until we confess our sins. Until then, we feel the need of waiting. And this is interesting. When, we, when they sin, they feel the need of waiting a little bit for some time before they, before they even dare to come with their sin before God. And especially if it's a repeated one, you, you, you take some time, maybe a few days, a week, just to master that courage to come before God. And until, until then, they cannot even dare, they cannot even think about asking for something from God or, or relying on God to help them in any way. So until they confess their sins, they are cut off from God. They cannot dare to ask God for anything. They are on their own. And finally, when they muster enough courage to come with their sin before God, they feel that, that they need to cry as... as um, as much as they can and as sincere as they possibly can so that they would assure God that they, re they are really sorry about their, the, about their sins and in a way to, to kind of uh, make penitence for their sins, to pay for their sins, to feel that they, they told God they are really sorry for their, that sin. And they believe that the more they cry, the more God will believe them and finally will grant them forgiveness. But now let's think about this. As far as God is concerned, and we, we've seen that until now in the previous, and we will see it from, uh, from now on too. God can never be upset again about your sins or wait for your heartfelt confession before granting forgiveness. He would grant you forgiveness even if you don't confess your sins. Because all our sins uh, have been paid in full in Christ and you are in Christ. He can never be upset with Christ. You and Christ are, are one. There is no distinction. There is no longer you. It's only Christ. So he can never be upset with you because that would mean to be upset with Christ. So even if you do sinful actions, you are covered. You are in Christ. He can never be upset. So take that out of your mind. Don't wait. Don't stay far away from God. Don't feel like you cannot approach God. You cannot. You have to cry a lot. You have to... To show him that you really, he knows because he changed your nature. He knows that you are sorry. He knows that you don't like that you, uh, you sin because that's him in you. That's the Holy Spirit in you that convinces you and makes you feel sorry. It's not you. It's the Christ in you that makes you feel sorry because he, his holy nature is in you. But he is not 
upset. He will never, after Christ went on the cross, Jesus Christ, He will never accuse you or be upset with you. Although He is grieved as a father, as a loving father, He is grieved not because you hurt Him, but because you hurt yourself. Because your, He knows that sin hurts you. Sin is death. Sin brings death. Sin brings condemnation. Sin brings shame. Sin brings shame and guilt. And He knows and He loves us so much. He loves you so much that He hates to see you in sin and to see you in shame and guilt. But He's not upset with you. He's no longer upset with you. The second reason why He's not upset besides the fact that you are in Christ and He can never be upset with Christ. The second reason is that if He is upset with you and He expects your confession so that you would forgive you. That means, uh, that means a double payment for your sins because your sins were already paid for in Christ. You don't need to pay by your crying, by your penitence, by your feeling sorry. You don't need to pay again. That will be double payment and that's not, a that's not the justice of God. And thirdly, our crying for confession in order to be forgiven or for our sins to be taken away would be again, as, as I said before, a human work added to the condition of being justified. So no human words can ever justify us, only, only the sacrifice of Jesus. And I wanted to, to, say, uh, to the, say this uh, uh, at this point, that our sins, past, present, and futures are all taken away. If Christians could lose their salvation and their state of justification so easily at the next sin, then the most loving thing that the Father God could do for them is to kill them immediately after they receive salvation, after they receive Jesus Christ in their hearts, so that they won't have a chance to lose that salvation, so, so they would remain uh, saved forever. Uh, isn't that right? So that, that would be the most loving thing for God to do for us. But that is not true, because we cannot, our past, present, and uh, future sins have been all taken away. And finally, still here, I want to ask you, when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, were you in existence in that time? Were you living on this earth? Of course not. I wasn't there. I didn't even exist at all and you didn't exist. But still, all, all your sins that He died for on the cross, uh, from His point of view 2,000 years, all your sins, you are here in 2,000 years later, all your sins, from all your life, they were all future from Jesus' point of view. When He died 2,000 years ago, He died for all your sins. That means past, present, and future sins. The sins of your whole lifespan. Isn't that wonderful? You cannot add anymore that you are free of condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus until the next sin. There is even the next sin is taken away immediately, automatically, even without your confession. So that's why Paul says you are not condemned even, even after your next sin. The third addition is, that, uh, is the following one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as long as they do works of righteousness and as long as they walk according to the Spirit. Now, eternal justification is received by, by the believer at the moment of salvation completely apart from works. Completely apart from works. Let's read Romans 3.20 first and then uh, in the same chapter, verse 28. But Romans 3.20 says this, Paul says this, Because by the works of the law, which are spiritual, which are holy, which are righteous. 
because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So by those works, no flesh, no human being will be justified in his sight. And 28 says this, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from works of righteousness, you are justified by faith alone. Faith is the only condition of receiving justification forever. Works are not a condition, but they are a natural effect or result of a genuine saving faith. Faith alone justifies, but not the faith that is alone. I'll say that again. Faith alone justifies, but not faith that is alone. So works, they have their place, but not as a condition for justification, but as a result, a necessary, indestructible, uh, natural result of a genuine saving faith. And I'll explain that. And for that, probably uh, you all can guess where I'm going in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, where James uh, seemingly contradicts Paul. And he says that you are justified both by faith and works. And Paul says, no, you are justified only by faith. So I want to try to reconcile this seeming contradiction and show you what is the place of the works in this whole scheme of the gospel of justification. James 2, 14 to 26 says this, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and no and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by works, by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our, Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac as his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. This is the verse that I wanted to get to. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's think about this passage. James affirms in verse 24 that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In James, uh, if you look at history, James was one of the pillars of, of the church in Jerusalem. And he seems to have been bent a little bit more on the law side, more, uh, more than Apostle Paul. And he stresses a lot about works here. However, James, James isn't saying that you need works as the cause of your justification. Works cannot be added as a primary condition to justification. He's saying that you need works as the consequence of your justification. Works cannot be added as a primary condition to justification, but as a necessary result of genuine faith. There is an indestructible connection between faith and works. And I want you to imagine now a triangle. And at the base, 
this is uh, this is one of the views that Christians have. At the base, you have the two points, the two points of the base of the triangle. You have the faith in one part, in one side, and works on the other side. And on top of the triangle, there is justification. So a lot of people, if you if you draw this triangle in your mind, a lot of people think that faith and works they are on the same level, at the same primary conditions. You have to have both to to be justified. But that's not true. That's, this is not what James is trying to say and Paul, uh, together with Paul. Cut off the, um, the line between works in that triangle. Cut it off from, from the works towards justification and just leave the two lines. From faith to justification and from faith to works. So this is the correct way I believe that Paul and James would agree if they were here. That faith is the only primary condition and cause of justification that is on top. And works are a necessary result of genuine faith. So faith with works, they will always be together. But works are not the cause of justification. They are just an effect of faith. And to give you an example, again about the electric power, the, the power plant and light. The light that you have in your house, the light bulbs, they are lighted by the energy that comes from the power plant. You cannot try... To, uh, to produce light on your own in your house, to make those bulbs uh, light up, in order to prove that you have power, you have electric power coming from the plant. It's the other way around. If you really have electric power coming from the plant, then you will have light, naturally you will have light. The problem with many Christians uh, is that they have a genuine faith at the moment of salvation in regards to salvation from hell, they, they put their faith in Christ, the simple faith in Christ, but then they don't apply the same simple faith to sanctification and to works in the present life. So they, they put their faith uh, uh, to be saved from hell for, for, for the future life, but they don't put the same faith to be sanctified in the present life and produce works. Because of that, they, they have all kinds of wrong beliefs and wrong ways of being sanctified. They trust the wrong thing. They have wrong teaching. So because of those wrong beliefs, they are still saved from hell. They will go to heaven. But in this present life, they tend to produce very few works of righteousness and are sometimes in doubt that their faith is genuine or that they are saved at all. So that's the reason sometimes James needed probably to stress this out, that if, you, if your faith is genuine, it will produce the right works of righteousness. If not, it will not produce. A lot of Christians, they are saved, they are going to, to heaven, they are saved from hell. But as far as this present life, because of the wrong beliefs, their faith produces very few works. And then they start wondering if they, they, they start focusing on works to produce works to prove that they are genuine. You cannot do that. If you are genuine, you will produce works, right? So don't focus so much on works, but focus on, the, uh, on your faith. That simple faith, put your faith in, as I explained in, in the previous session, in session six, when I spoke about, or when I talked about grace. In the same way you are saved from hell, the same way you are saved from the sins, from sinful action, from habits in this present life, trust in His grace and believe in Him and then works will come. You don't have to focus on stress of, on works to prove that you are saved. Works will come naturally because you have the nature of God in you and you will be in rest. The more you are in rest, as I said in previous session, your fight is not with the works to do works with the, directly with the, with the sins. Your fight is a fight of, of rest, fight of, uh, of faith to be in rest. The more you are, in re you are in rest, the more you rest in the power of Jesus Christ. But more you are strong, as Ephesians says, finally, my brother, be strong in the power of his strength. 
in the power of his dominion, in the power of his grace. Believe in his grace. The more you are in rest, the more you will see works coming out naturally. So works of genuine favor are not done by the believer to obtain or maintain justification or salvation from God, but they are done for the pleasure of God and for rewards at the end. See how good God is? He gives us the power. He created already the good works so that we walk in Him. We are His workmanship. And as we walk in those good, good works of righteousness, at the end He will also reward us. So those works are not to obtain favor with God or maintain justification, but to for reward and for bringing God pleasure. And the fourth, the last addition uh, of this uh, verse is the following one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus as long as they don't have any unconfessed sin in their lives. So many times we believe that if we still have an unconfessed sin, we are, we are under condemnation. But confession, as I said earlier, confession of sin does not constitute the basis or the, or the condition for maintaining our salvation. Once we are justified by faith, the Bible says in Romans 5, 1, and we'll read it, we have peace with God forever. Let's read Romans 5, 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, nothing added. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's move on. I, I will sit a little bit and probably by, until the end of this session, I will sit on this issue of confession of sins. Uh, and I'll say this, if, maintaining, if the maintaining of justification or of salvation depending on our confession of sins, of all sins or only known sins, that will create the following problems, the following, the following theological and biblical problems. And these problems are the following. When you confess, are you sure that you confess everything? Because if, you, if, if confession is a requirement, you need to confess everything. Do we have enough time to confess every sin? Uh, Martin Luther, if you, uh, many of you know him, was obsessed with, and tired with confession. He was obsessed with confessing his every sins. And we know that at least once he spent six hours in a row to confess his sin to his superior. It was a work, a hard work to make sure that he did not leave any sin uh, unconfessed. But now think about the people of Israel. They had a day of atonement once a year when they would confess their sins and put them all on a goat and send it in the wilderness. Now can you imagine six million Jews, six million Jews taking the time to confess all their sins one by one from that whole year? Can you imagine how long it would take? But they did not do that. They just put all their sins, generally speaking, uh, generically speaking, on that goat, and they are all taken away at once. But think about God. He's a pragmatic God. He's a pragmatic God, more pragmatic than us. He's not interested in, in confessing everything. He's interested in the, in the payment. So the people of Israel, their confession of sins, man, they put all the sins, generically, everything that they did, at that year on a goat and they would send it in a wilderness. Otherwise, it would take years for them to confess every little sin from one year, six million Jews. Also, when John the Baptist baptized people in water, they would come to him and confess their sins if you read in the Gospels. Now, do you think that they will start confessing every little sin that they had to him in the water? In both these cases, with the people of Israel, with John the Baptist, confessing sins meant admitting that they had sinned before God and believing that he forgives 
all their sins. Isn't that right? That makes the perfect sense. That this is what the this is what Christians do once once and for all when they become born again. So this is what you do when you become born again. When you give your life to Jesus, you confess that you have sinned. You admit that you have sins. But all your sins, past, present, and future, are taken away by Jesus Christ's sacrifice. And you are free of condemnation forever. That was the first problem, theological problem. A second problem, what happens with the criminal from the cross who had a multitude of sins and did not confess any of it. He just asked Jesus to remember him when he would be in his kingdom, in his, in, in his heaven. He did not confess all sins. And Jesus told him, today you will be with me in heaven. Amen. So he just, uh, his heart, he, with his heart, he put his trust in Jesus. The third, the third problem with it, when somebody does wrong to us, when somebody does a mistake to you or wrongs you in a way, from what you know from the Bible, does God tell you to expect first uh, for that person to ask for forgiveness before you forgive them? As far as I know, you are to forgive them even if they don't have even if they don't ask for forgiveness, because forgiving them is, uh, is first and foremost for you. You will be tormented if you don't forgive those persons. So the Bible says that you, you, need, you, you need to forgive them even if they don't ask for forgiveness. Now, if God expects us to behave this way, don't you think he, much more He would do that? He doesn't need your confession. is uh, uh, not a condition for Him to forgive you. You are already forgiven. You are already justified from all your sins. Another problem is that the fact that you confessed... Now, when, whenever you confess your sins to God or to another person, uh, have you noticed that that confession changed you permanently and you did not sin at all in that area? So confession of sin doesn't even change you. Sometimes it changes you. I, I'm not saying sometimes there are people, they confess and they are, they are done with that sinful habit, sinful action for good. But usually it doesn't go away just by confessing. It goes away by, by grace for faith. Even if you confess it and you take your load off your chest, that will not help you too much in, in uh, removing that sin, that habit, that sinful action out of your life. Uh, another problem, what happens if you suddenly die and have an unconfessed sin? It would mean that, that would mean if you die and you have an unconfessed sin, that would mean, and you are, and your justification depends on your confession, that would mean that you are justified completely and definitely only when you get to the end of your life. And even then, only if you confess all your sins. I used to, when I, whenever I, in the past, whenever I would, uh, go in a plane and travel. Every time I would go in a plane, I was under this condemnation and I would take time to cry before the Lord before I got into the plane and confess all the sins that I knew so that I would be sure that if I die, if the plane crashes, then I would go to heaven and I would be saved. And that was, it seems funny maybe, but for me, it was, it was almost a torment, a torment. I had to confess to make sure that I'm good and peace with God so that if I die, I'm going to heaven. And probably you did that too, I don't know. But um, if I, I had to confess, I'll say it again, that means justification is not complete and it will, it will finish, it will be definite only at the end of your life. And even then, only if you died with all your sins confessed and that doesn't make, that's not the Bible. You are justified even with unconfessed sins. And the last problem, how could God and this is very, how could God and Paul, the great apostle Paul, 
forget to mention such an important aspect of confession of sin as a condition to maintain salvation in all of his doctrinal epistles. Romans, Galatians, Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and all the pastoral epistles. Nowhere Paul mentions anything about confessing the sins. Isn't that, uh, isn't that strange? He mentioned so, so many things. He mentioned about justification, about salvation, about sanctification. He spoke in so much detail and still he never mentions confession of sins. There are only two passages that in, the, in the New Testament that specifically talk about, allude, uh, talk about confession of sins and they are not written by Paul. They are written by James and by John. That doesn't mean they are less important. And I will explain these two passages. But even there, even in those two passages, none of them Mention, mentions confessions, uh, a confession of sin as a condition to maintain or to obtain justification and salvation. And those passages are the following, and we will discuss them briefly. Is James 5, 14 to 16, and 1 John 1, verses 5 to 9. So let's read the first passage, James 5, 14 to 16. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for, for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anoint him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Amen. The passage here talks about confessing our, confessing our sins to one another and not to God. That, that's the first thing that we notice. In verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another. So it doesn't talk, say anything about confessing to God or about obtaining. That's the first thing we see. The second thing is uh, that um, confessing your sins to one another does not make you more holy before God and does not bring you closer before God. Neither delivers, delivers you permanently, uh, permanently from not doing the sin again, as I said before. And don't think that if you confessed and cried and took the load of your chest, you are free forever that, and you will not do that sin again. That comes, as I said, only by grace through faith and not by confession. Uh, the third thing about this passage is that the context of the passage, if you look uh, very carefully, is sickness and physical healing. And some sins, probably you know that, some sins can be the direct cause for certain sicknesses or diseases. And sometimes by simply confessing those sins, the person is relieved, is delivered from sickness, is delivered from infirmity, and is free, is healed. For example, witchcraft. If some, if some person played with witchcraft and did all kinds of, or somebody put a curse on that person, or if they could, uh, and because of that, they got some sickness. The moment they confess, I've, I've heard about this, uh, such examples, such uh, um, things happening. The moment that person uh, confessed that they played with witchcraft and they, uh, they uh, gave up their witchcraft, they were healed instantly. So if sometimes we, when you confess your sins to one another, you are healed even physically uh, from sickness. And that would be the first reason for confessing sins to one another, uh, right? The second reason from this passage for confessing the sins to one another can be to receive help in prayer from another believer, from other believers concerning that problem that you have or sin, and to be strengthened to have victory over that sinful behavior. So that's the second reason for why you would confess 
sins to another person. In fact, that is what verse 16 also encourages us. To pray for one another. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Pray for one another. And the third reason for confessing some hidden sins to other people is the emotional relief and the uh, therapeutic effect following the sharing of some things that, uh, that stole your peace and kept you, kept condemning you, kept you in shame, in guilt. You are free, you are relieved when you, say, when you tell that, that sin, that hidden thing to another person, to another believer. And this aspect is encouraged even by the world, by psychology, to take off that load, to share with somebody as being beneficial, to bring to life things that are hidden, that tear you apart inside and keep you in bondage. And, and these are the only reasons that I see in this passage for confess, and there, there is nowhere mentioned that confession of sin is a requirement so that you are still saved or justified. This is a completely uh, different context, and I explained, uh, I just explained the reasons. And the, the last, the second passage about confession of sin, which is a little bit more delicate, and there is a lot of controversy uh, on this passage. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all our righteousness. Uh, some Christians believe that John is talking about born-again believers. Some uh, believe that uh, they are not born-again believers. And I will explain uh, my point of view following my st- uh, study, biblical study, and by reading from others and, and studying the history of this book and what John to whom John addressed, what John meant, and I'll, uh, I'll explain this. But let's read the passage before. 1 John 1, 5-9. This is the message, says John, we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the, in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's study together this passage. And I, I encourage you to be, to be like those Christians in, in Berea, to search and search for yourself, to be convinced by yourself. And first of all, in this passage, John addresses the unbelievers, I believe, and not the believers as 1 John 2.1 would, uh, would suggest. 1 John 2.1 says, my child, my little children. So John here, I, I believe he's addressing both believers and unbelievers. He, he's addressing a church. For instance, if we look at, at Romans, Paul addresses the epistle of Romans to the church in Rome, right? But then we see in Romans 10, 9 to 10, that he addresses unbeliever. He shows there how to be saved. That you can, if you confess with your mouth and you put your faith in Christ, then you will be saved. So even though he addresses the church in Rome, who were believers mostly, he also mentions something for unbelievers. And, and also, as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, there is the visible church and the invisible church. And many times in the expression, brothers and sisters, or as John says, my little children, we use that when we address a church or a congregation, when we preach, when we teach, right? But we never know if in that congregation all of those are really believers uh, or they are also unbelievers, right? Uh, some can be professing Christians. And even if verse 2, 1 John, 1 John 2, 1 seems to indicate Christians that are in a church, going to church does not make you a Christian. My little children can 
um, relate with believers but also with all the body of the visible church. Many of the letters of the New Testament are written in a context of responding to concerns, to, to concerns, to doctrinal error as Paul did with all his epistles and false teachings by certain groups of people. And 1 John was written in response to a pastor from a confused church in Asia asking John, how do we deal with this doctrinal heresy of Gnosticism? The book of John is uh, at least the first chapter and some other chapters is about Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge. And the Gnostics were a group of people that, who believed, they, are, uh, who believed they, they possessed superior spiritual knowledge. They believed that all flesh is evil and that only spirit is good. And because they believed that, they did not believe that Jesus really came in the flesh. Because flesh would be sinful and Jesus was holy. So they did not believe that Jesus came in the flesh. They believed he was just an illusion. And they also believed that because sin had to do with our flesh only, there, there really was not sin. Sin was also just an illusion to them. Sin was not real to them. And the church was filled with people who not only did not believe that Christ came in the flesh, but they didn't believe sin was real. So this is the problem that John addresses in, in, in his epistle, 1 John. Now let's look at specifically at verse 5. Verse 5 says, that, says this, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If you remember the first session and then the following one, I, I explain in detail life, light and darkness life and death light darkness life death there are only two realms or two kingdoms in which people can be and this verse describes it light or darkness life or death they are either saved or lost so if you are in christ you are in the light amen but you are light and you are saved you if you are not in christ you are you are in darkness and you are lost and that is what John says here, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It's only light and darkness. And Christians are in the light. They are never in darkness. They are by their spirit, by their rebirth, they will never be in darkness. Verse 6 says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice truth. The Gnostics were great at claiming they were saved in Christ, but in reality they were lying to themselves and others and were not living the truth. They were not living, they were not putting their faith in Christ. They are not living in light. Verse 7. But if we walk, here is the interesting thing. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now many interpret this verse as walking, when he says we walk in the light, as walking according to the light or up to the light. However, here it does not talk about the light in terms of behavior and actions, but in terms of the realm you are walking and living in, or in terms of the nature of your spirit. It's not how, but where. If we walk, why do I say that? Because you cannot go in and out of the light. That's the first reason. You cannot, once you are born again, you cannot go in and out of the light. And we see that in the following verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So you are son of light and a son of day. You walk in light. That's the place where you walk, right? 
Colossians 1.13. For he, has, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So you are now in the kingdom of his beloved son, even if you do sinful actions. Another one. I'll give you a few, a few ones here because I want you to see this separation from the realms. Um, John 8, to, uh, 8 verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You have the light of life. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And uh, two more, 2 Corinthians 6, 14-15. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what part partnership have partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever our idea of light is knowledge and information of the law of the moral law of morality and that we have to live and walk according to the level of knowledge and revelation that we have from God or in other words, we, we need to, to live morally. And we need to do that. We need to walk in integrity and morality. I'm not dis discarding that. But that is not the whole thing of walking in the light. It's the place where, not, not only how, but the place where. And this is where uh, what John is saying here. If we understand that the light as how, or as, uh, as how to live, and, and that refers to, if we understand this verse 7, that it refers to behavior and action, then God is fully living in light, as light. All his actions are light. And the verse says, walk in the light exactly as he himself is in the light. Do you do that now? Can you do that until you finish this life? All your actions will be light. John says, walk as exactly as he himself is in the light. Of course you cannot do that. The, the verse says that we are to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. And he says that we, uh, once we walk and we are, we are in the realm of the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The fourth reason why I believe this verse 7 does not refer necessarily to behavior or actions when, it, when John encourages us to walk in the light is because at, if we understand the, this light as how to live and, uh, and that it refers to behavior, then the line of thought of this verse would become the following. As long as you do not sin, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin, right? As long as you do not do sinful actions, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. From what sin does the blood of Jesus cleanse you from if you do not walk in sin already, if you don't do sinful actions already? So it doesn't make any sense. So when John says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, he refers, if we are saved and if we are in the light, in the realm of light, and we have the nature of our spirit changed in the light, then we can have fellowship with other believers, with one another. And in that realm, in that, uh, in that arena, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin automatically. So that is the fourth reason why I believe this verse does not refer necessarily to behavior and actions when John says walk in the light, but to the realm and to the 
to the nature of your spirit, to, the, to salvation. True believers may still do sinful actions, but never walk in darkness again. Going to a McDonald's does not make you a Big Mac, or going to a garage does not make you a car. So once you are light, you will produce generally light, uh, uh, works of light. You will still do sinful action while you are still on earth, but you are nevertheless light in the Lord. And that is why the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Now let's move on to verse 9, to the to the our verse that we are interested in mainly. And see that this word confess, if we confess our sin, the Greek word for that word is homologeo. And, and it means say the same thing, agree or acknowledge. Say the same thing. Acknowledge your sins, that you have sins in general. Not every little sin, but acknowledge that you have sinned uh, to God. And many Christian churches teach that you must confess your sins in order to be forgiven based on this, on this verse. They teach that you can go on, that you can go in and out of fellowship with God. They say that you must keep short accounts with God. And the reason for the short accounts is, is so you do not forget the sins you committed and thus be out of fellowship with God for an extended period of time. But I'm telling you, you can never be out of fellowship with God. Once you are in His presence, once you are saved, you are in fellowship with Him forever. You can, God is not like humans. He, you are not out of His fellowship. Let's go back to this verse. If, if we are to confess our sins, let's, let's suppose we need to confess our sins. That means... These sins must refer to all known and unknown sins because it doesn't, it doesn't specify to confess only the known sins. Known and un, unknown. And nowhere in the Bible says that we need to confess only the known sins. Here it says confess our sins, right? As I said before, can anyone, can you tell me that you always remember every little sin, known and unknown, and you confess to God, that's not possible. It's impossible. I cannot do that. I sin without knowing. I sin unconsciously. And if our forgiveness of sin depends on our confession, then we have a serious problem. So uh, our forgiveness of sins, our cleansing, does not depend on our confessing. This confession here in verse 9 refers to unbelievers. And John says, if you admit that you have sinned, to Gnostics especially, if you admit that you have sinned, then you can be saved. Then you can be forgiven and cleansed for all your unrighteousness. This is what John is saying here. Um, the last part of verse 9 says that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, once you are saved, based on what you heard so far in all this session, once you are saved, can you, as a safety, as a righteousness of God in Christ, can you still be unrighteous? Here, the verses, He will cleanse us from all unrighteous. How can you be unrighteous again once you are righteous? You are now righteous. You cannot be unrighteous again. Everything about you is righteous. Verse 7, then, uh, I come back a little bit, says that He cleanses us from all sin. So that we would have fellowship with one another, so that we could go together on the same road and be a member of the body of Christ. Notice that verse 7 says all sins. At the end of the, he, the blood of Jesus, His Son cleanses us from all sin. And then verse 9 says that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And not particularly confessed sins. All sins, all unrighteousness. So that doesn't that seem like the moment you are saved and when he cleanses you from all sins, past, present, and future, all unrighteousness, you become righteous. You become the righteousness of God in Christ. 
Now let's go to 1 John 2.12 in the, uh, the second chapter, which refers to little children. And uh, 1 John uh, 2.12 says this, I'm writing you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. All your sins have been forgiven. Why would he say in first chapter you need to confess uh, as a believer and then in the second chapter says that all your sins are already forgiven for his name's sake. Not because of your confession, not because you did that and that, but because of his name's sake. Amen? One more argument that this passage from 1 John 1, 9 does not refer to confessing every or sins, even known sins of the believer. It refers to the moment of salvation. Each of the last five verses in 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 1 begins with the word, if we, with the phrase, if we. And in the Greek, these are called third class, third class conditional statements. In fact, the statement means this, if we, and we may or we may not. So if we means we may or we may not. In other words, the things about which John is writing may or may not apply to the particular reader. The apparent reason for this is that among, as I said in the beginning, among the true believers, there were those who were not genuine children of God. What applied to the unbeliever in verse 6 would not apply to the believer. The opposite would be true in verse 7 and so on. Many have erroneously concluded that the wording proves that everything that is said in these verses refers to true believers. But that's not true. As we have seen and will continue to see, this cannot possibly this true alternates from believers to unbelievers and back and forth. Um, the Apostle John is using a literary device and he does so because some were unsaved among the believers. And we see that in examples of this device in 1 John 2.19 when he addresses again the unbelievers. says that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. So he refers to unbelievers. And then also in 1 John 2.26, I will not read it because of the... Uh, of time and 4.1. So he, he refers both to believers and he addresses both believers and unbelievers. Hypothetical propositions are presented for each person to decide objective whether he, they are saved or not. And even the writer to the Hebrews, epistle of Hebrews, uses the same device in Hebrews 3, 7 to 14 and 10. Chapter 10, 22, verses 22 to 31. And the truth that the believer is always being cleansed from sin finds its authority from the Greek text, from the Greek text in 1 John 1, 7. Again, verse 7 in John. I want, to, I want us to analyze the word cleanses. Verse 7 in 1 John chapter 1 says, And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The word cleanses conveys the idea, the idea in the Greek of a work that begins at a point in time and continues without stopping. It started at the moment of the moment of salvation, but continues without stopping. So the believer never experiences a time or day or night when he is not cleansed from all sin. That's why you can die with an unconfessed sin and you will not go to hell. If you are genuinely saved, you have you are automatically immediately cleansed. All your future sins are taken away. The cleansing work of Christ never depends on never waits on something that the sinning saint is required to do. 
So the cleansing word of Christ will never wait for you to do something so that you would be cleansed. Will never depend on something that you do. The sinning saint is always cleansed, is continuously cleansed by the blood of Jesus. John says, if you are in that realm, if you are really changed, if you are in the light, you are continually uh, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Uh, Sin does not cause the saints fellowship to be broken with God. In other words, God is not waiting to restore fellowship because it was never broken to begin with. Amen. So he will not wait for your confession to do so that he will forgive you. Now the next question is, what do we do when we sin? That's the, so if we, if we don't confess, what do I do with God? How do I approach God? Do we confess our sins or not? Yes, we do. <laughs> that would be probably a surprise to you. Yes, we confess, but not in order to be forgiven. That's the idea that I want to bring you in this session. You do not confess in order to be forgiven or justified or to maintain your salvation. We do it in order for our minds and our conscience to be able to relate again with God. That's the problem. Your mind and your conscience. Is not able to relate with God unless you do something about your sin. So that your minds and conscience are able to relate again with God with all heart and sincerity. I mean, to be again honest before God, to, to open your heart before God. And, it, and, and it, it is because we live in this world and in this world, in our human relationship, usually forgiveness of, of one another depends on the other person apologize the, uh, the person that wronged us. Our forgiveness depends on, on that person apologizing or asking for forgiveness. When somebody does something to you, you expect them to come and apologize and to ask for forgiveness and then you forgive. So because of this, this mechanism that we are used to in our minds, we are born into, we, we believe that God is the same. So a close example of, of how and why to confess our sin would be the relationship between a, uh, godly mar- in a godly married couple. Like when a husband or a wife does something, does a mistake, so hurts the other one, the, the, the marriage is not destroyed immediately and should never be destroyed by, that, by those mistakes. No matter how many mistakes, how many things you do wrong in a, in a marriage, those will, should not and will, uh, will not destroy the marriage agreement, the marriage um, uh, covenant. That's the word. The marriage covenant immediately, right? You still are married, but the fellowship is a little bit broken. And unless you ask for forgiveness, you forgive each other, then you come, you will not have the same fellowship again. So then you come again in fellowship. But this illustration is not a perfect analogy with God and us because God is not like humans waiting for our apology. It's not like in the married couple when the other one person expects, waits for the, the other person's apology. God does not wait for an apology in order to forgive us. So that's a close example, but God does not expect. In the same time, also we do not come out of fellowship from God's point of view. Only from our point of view, we, we feel like we came out of the fellowship, but from God's point of view, we never come out of the, uh, fellowship with Him. But from our perce- perception of reality, because we did something wrong, we feel like we are no longer in fellowship with God and we feel the need to do something. And it's okay because the Bible says that we grieve, we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can frustrate the grace of God in Corinthians, in Ephesians. But, we, but he, does not, he does not interrupt His fellowship with us because of that. Amen? 
So because he's good, because you feel, because you feel you, you are out of fellowship, then you need to, conf- to confess, but not all sins. If there is something like when you come and try to worship God and pray and pray to God or do something, there is something that you did that bothers you and the devil brings it to your remembrance. How can you do this when you did that? So there, if there is something like that, the, the way to confess and to pray to God might be something like this. I'll give you an example. Um, Father, I'm so sorry that I did what I did. And I, I, I acknowledge that it's sin. I acknowledge that I grieved you and I grieved your Holy Spirit. And I, I, uh, but I thank you. I thank you that even that sin was removed by your grace, is removed, and I'm forgiven. I am free of condemnation. I am free of sin. And I, and you start confessing the truth of God. You say that, yes, Father, I, I sinned. I did that mistake. I did that sin. I sinned against you, and I'm, I'm sorry for what I did. But I thank you that by your grace I am justified forever. And I thank you that I am, in, I am in your presence forever. I am in fellowship with you forever. So you admit, you come to God. And so that your mind, after that your mind can be free to express to God, to be free to come to God. But don't let, don't let that confession to, to, to lie to you that unless you say that, God will not forgive or you are in a, in a pending state with your salvation. Amen. And we might also, a lot of it, a lot of us look in the Old Testament, for example, of confession. And we see in Psalm 32 verse 5. Uh, where is that? Psalm 32 verse 5 says, we see David. And not only that, in many Psalms, David confessing his sin says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We know that David sinned greatly before God and he confessed his sin before God um, very often. But let me ask you this. Do you think that uh, confession atoned for his sins before God? No. He had to go and sacrifice, bring offerings of sin according to the law of Moses. Moses. He had to go to the Day of Atonement once a year. So that confession was for his fellowship, his relationship with God did not contribute to the atonement of sin. God provided a way how to atone, atone for his sins, how to be covered, how, the, how his sins can be covered. And it wasn't by confession. It was by sacrifice, amen, by sacrifice of animals. One last question that you might ask besides confession is that, does that give Christian license to sin? The fact that you can still do sinful action, but you're still not condemned. Your salvation is secure. You are justified forever. Does that mean you can sin all you want? Of course not. Paul says in Romans, and I believe that he was preaching the same message that triggered these questions from people. They were asking, so now if grace came, can we sin? Can we sin all we want? And Paul says, no. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? You died to sin. You no longer have a sinful nature. Can can the Christian do whatever he wants or she wants? Emphatically, yes. But why would you think of doing evil when you repented and came on God's side? And since you do not have a sinful nature anymore, I, I want to ask you, does God do whatever he wants? Of course he does. But he never sins and he never struggles with you. He does not have cravings. He loves, uh, he loves the holiness. He loves uh, the law of God. So he can do whatever he wants. But his whatever he wants is in the range of holiness, right? Again, um, Jesus. Uh, could Jesus do whatever he wanted on earth? Of course, yes. But he never sinned, right? When we hear this message, and when you hear this message at first, 
I, I, I acknowledge you might tend to go and sin and indulge in sin, especially if you had some things that you liked. You might go again and indulge in those sins and be free. And because you've been under legalistic um, teaching so long, you feel like you can celebrate and maybe you cry before the Lord and you are so happy and so joyful when you hear this message. But after that, it, you you have the tendency to indulge and be more a little bit more uh Free, uh, although it's not the right word, to indulge in sin. But I want to let I want to tell you now, because because of the Holy Spirit in you, the slowly the love of God will overwhelm you. Will once you taste that freedom, you will see that the love of God will bring you back, and you will start walking in holiness, not because of the fear of hell, not because you are afraid of God, but because you love holiness from the heart. You choose to not sin exactly like God. In the same way as God, God uh, does not sin and He loves holiness. God wants you to live for Him. The free of constraints, free of threats. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to, um, to, enjoy, to enjoy the life with Him. Amen. I believe we will stop here and we'll continue in the next session because we already went too long. But I want us to memorize two passages, Romans 8, 1 to 2 and Romans 3, 28. And I'll read them and then we can memorize them. Romans 8, 1, 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Let's personalize it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for me who I am in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. And then uh, the second verse, Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. For I maintain that I am justified by faith apart from works of the law. Amen and amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the gift of no condemnation. Thank you that our salvation is secure and eternal. Thank you, Father, that your, our forgiveness and our just fear does not depend on our confession. But thank you for, for the fellowship that we can have with you. Thank you that we can come to you and tell you uh, what bothers us, what things that brings us shame, and we can be again in fellowship anytime. And, but we are always in your presence. And Father, we thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your life. Thank you for your fellowship. And most of all, Father, I thank you that I am never out of fellowship with you and I have peace with you. And thank you for not accusing me. Thank you for being on my side forever. Thank you for, uh, for paying for my sins in Christ in full, my past, present, and future sins. I thank you for all that in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Until we meet again in the next session, we'll continue about the free, uh, the gift of no condemnation, free of condemnation, about the eternal security of salvation in session 8. Until then, may God bless you in all areas of your life. In the name of Jesus, amen.